why are you setting the prices of everything? Why? What's the difference between you and the, the centrally planned Soviet economy uh, or Chinese economy where they, they, by edict, set the prices of everything? And by setting the price of money, that's exactly what you're doing. You're sitting there behind the curtain, pulling your little levers like the, the Wizard of Oz and wondering why things keep spinning out of control. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Vernadelstein. I'm joined, as always, with founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner. Our special guest today is Brian London. Brian is the editor of the Gold Newsletter and the host of the New Orleans Investment Conference, which we will be attending this year. If you didn't come last year, you have to come this year. Brian, thanks so much for coming on. And tell us, what are you up to this time? Well, great to be with you all. Um, Yeah, we're working very hard on this year's New Orleans Investment Conference. It's got what I think is the the finest lineup of speakers at any investment event in our history. And and basically that means any investment event ever. Uh, It it really is a remarkable uh, array of of big thinkers. I think the finest thinkers out there today and graced, of course, with uh, Keith's presence this year. So really looking forward to getting his views as well. Keith, I know you're going to be on the Precious Metals panel. Everyone should come watch, hear some spicy things. So I want to start off actually talking about gold. So most people weren't sure where gold was going to go last year. We had the beginning of rate hikes. Most people said this would be a headwind for gold. So Keith, what were we thinking last year when we saw rate hikes beginning? And are you surprised where gold is sitting now? I'm trying to remember what I said um, in the gold market outlook. So um, without the benefit of having reread that and not knowing what I said at the time, uh, something like, well, this obviously can put downward pressure on all asset prices, but I think gold is going to be less affected this this time around versus in the 2005 to 2007 uh, rate hikes, because I think there's less leverage. And I think there's a lot more people that are turning to gold for the first time uh, because the monetary system is so screwy and in the rest of the world, the monetary system is so screwing them that uh, for every person who thinks, you know, Keynesian beauty contest style, well, I have to sell gold because everyone else is going to sell gold because everyone knows that rising interest rates are supposed to cause gold to go down. There's two other people somewhere else in the world that are thinking, you know, I have to get more gold, you know, in my portfolio. So um, what we see is, the price of gold hasn't moved up, but it really hasn't moved down either. And here we are in, you know, between 1900 and 2000. Very interesting. And Brian, I want to send it your way. A lot of headwinds against gold. We've got high interest rates other than monetary metals. Of course, we do pay a yield on gold. Most people think, well, gold has no yield. So if cash is paying 5%, maybe I should sell some gold and move into cash. Now, if you're a monetary metals client, maybe you don't think that. But everyone else is thinking, well, shiny pet rock versus, you know, cash yielding 5% in a CD, it's risk-free, whatever that means. Um, So most people would think, wow, gold is going to have a lot of selling pressure. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think, though, that those high rates in T-bills are competition for every asset class. So it really isn't gold versus T-bills. It is probably more so stocks versus T-bills and in uh, and, and other investment classes, because gold really kind of stands alone in, in my view. The, the most interesting thing, and, and Keith alluded to this, and you have as well, is that We've had uh, since really the end of July, we've had the uh, a tremendous surge in yields, treasury yields, and uh, and really sovereign yields across the globe as we've had just a tremendous bond sell off. And that's been accompanied by uh, by dollar strength, dollar index strength, you know, the dollar against its its trade competitors. Uh, those are headwinds for gold. Everybody knows it should be a headwind for gold, but it really wasn't. Despite that, in August, gold lost about 1%, basically it was flat. So its performance has been absolutely outstanding. And the question is why? Um, now, if you look historically, gold uh, rising or holding ground in a rising interest rate environment is not really that rare. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it does happen uh, on occasion. And in, in this cycle, it actually started to happen until Russia invaded Ukraine and that kind of upset the whole uh, narrative. Um, but I think gold, uh, like the bond market, is extremely sensitive to, uh, or is, is a very sensitive and, and highly predictive mechanism. It looks forward to see what the next big thing is. And I think gold right now is recognizing, and, and big pocketed investors, even central banks are buying gold right now, because they recognize that this rate hike cycle is uh, is peaking or has peaked. We might have a little bit more left to it, but the next big thing is not more rate hikes. The next big thing is what's going to force the Fed to start reversing that cycling, that, that cycle and start lowering rates. And there are a lot of uh, boogeymen on the horizon that could force them to do that. Uh, in addition to just the, the basic business cycle and the harm that this rate environment does. So I think uh, smart investors are not willing to let go of gold and are actually accumulating gold at these levels in anticipation of, you know, something big on the horizon. And Keith, I want to send it to you now. So the first narrative was, hey, here's gold. And how is it going to be affected by this rate height cycle? Now it kind of feels like we're ending this rate height cycle, whether there are other hikes in the future or not. It feels like the real next narrative is what causes the Fed to pivot? Is it something that is a lag from their previous rate hikes? Maybe this will affect commercial real estate or the stock market or zombie companies. Or are people saying, listen, I'm loading up on gold because of some other reasons? I think people are loading up on gold for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but I do think that when the Fed pivots, first of all, I don't think it's an F. I think it's a when. I think Brian and I are probably on the same page on that as a when. Um, when the Fed pivots, I think that is going to be a tailwind for gold. That is, a lot of people are going to say, well, we all know that in the falling rates, people should buy gold, you know, bid it up. And um, plus, obviously, T-bills become relatively less attractive when the interest rate goes right back down, I think, to, to zero uh, and, and beyond as, as before. I, I don't, don't I, mean, I think the Fed is fighting the market with these hikes. And it's not going to win in the end. Market forces will prevail. So, yeah, I think when that happens, you're going to see uh, easily a couple hundred dollars higher gold price 
Um, I mean, I don't think, you know, $10,000 or, you know, some of these ridiculous numbers, but 23, 24, 2,500 at that point, you know, certainly seems within, uh, within the cards. And Brian, do you agree with Keith that not only might we be going back to zero interest rates, but we might actually be going into the negative territory as well. This is obviously uncharted waters, but a lot of people have been predicting, hey, we might be going to negative past zero. Well, if you carefully parse everything the Federal Reserve has said on a negative nominal rate, uh, they have never officially ruled it out. They said things like, uh, we're not considering that and, and that sort of thing. So they've never officially mm-hmm. ruled it out. Not that that really matters because, of course, they would, you know, break their word uh, with, without uh, an afterthought. So it could, they could. But one thing we can rest assured of is that whatever they do, it's going to dramatically uh, dramatically overshadow what they did post-COVID, which in turn was much more than what they did in, after the great financial crisis. Yes. Which in turn was much more than they had done in every previous uh, hiccup or recession. If you plot the bottoms in the interest rate cycles from really when Volcker killed off inflation, it's an ever descending staircase. And then they hit the foundation. They hit the ground floor at zero. And then they had to come up with all this other stuff to, you know, uh, quantitative easing, TARP, uh, after the great financial crisis. Then after COVID, much more uh, quantitative easing, uh, zeroed rates again, other programs. And at that point, money, uh, monetary adrenaline just injected directly into the veins of the economy, just deposited in people's bank accounts. Interestingly, helicopters were not needed. Uh, Nobody really foresaw the fact that you really didn't need those helicopters to drop money. You can just press a key on your computer and uh, there you go, everybody gets money. So whatever they do now, they have to do much more. They have to come up with shock and awe to get the same effect because the the patient has, is addicted not to easy money, but to ever easier money. And with every dose, every dose has to be so much greater to, to yield the same effect. Uh, ever easier. That is a really good way of saying that. Yeah. And, and, so where does this lead? You know, at some point, I don't know if it will be the next one or the one after that or the one after that. But the cycle is clear in that currencies and not just the dollar, but fiat currencies in general, because we're all in the same boat here. All the developed economies are doing the same thing. Fiat currencies in general are losing credibility with every one of these episodes. And pretty soon, even the, the, the everyday public uh, you know, Joe the plumber is going to say, you know, we're, we're bouncing from crisis to crisis. And every time my dollars get much, much cheaper, they just flood it with all these new dollars. I'm going to have to, you know, to help those dollars, I'm going to do what I have to to protect myself. So currencies are going to lose credibility and they're going to have to regain it in some way. And, and frankly, I think that way is the way it's always been. It's going to be through some reattachment to gold. Keith, I want to send it your way. So a lot of people are saying, hey, listen, you know, every year we have this crisis and this is just how capitalism works, Keith. You don't get it. Businesses get super greedy. Then there's a little bit of inflation. (laughs) Then the government comes in and they fix it. So uh, how do you actually see the issue 
And, uh, I, have, I have to give my little rant here and say, whatever the word may be, for a welfare system, welfare state so vast that no matter how high the progressive income tax goes, it can't possibly pay for it. So you have to institute a central bank that centrally plans their economy by mucking around with the quantity of money and the interest rate. And on top of that, a regulatory state where every productive enterprise is regulated, most professions are licensed, the government outright owns many industries wholesale, such as schools, roads, harbors, airports, trains, electric, water, sewer, and so on. Whatever the word is for that giant mess, capitalism is not that word. It, it's like, yeah, people say, well, you know, the uh, free market healthcare hasn't worked. <laughs> what market healthcare are you talking about, you know? Which market is less free, finance yeah. or, or healthcare right now? And I don't know which one is less free, but they're both utterly dominated by government in every way, big and small. I and, I have a, a, a secret burning desire to run for Congress, Keith, so I can so I can have five minutes to ask the Federal Reserve Chairman, whoever it would be at that time, do you believe in free markets? And of course they would say yeah. yes or or yes, but one of those yes butters. Yeah, uh, but you know, and the counter to that is why are you setting the prices of everything? Why? What's the difference between you and the the centrally planned Soviet economy uh, or Chinese economy, where they they by edict set the prices of everything, and by setting the price of money, that's exactly what you're doing. You're sitting there behind the curtain, pulling your little levers like the the Wizard of Oz. And wondering why things keep spinning out of control. I, I have a little rant about that as well. The Soviets tried to centrally plan production of, of grain. Now, you know, to grow wheat is a very simple thing, right? All you need is the right soil, which has already been proven for thousands of years. You plant the seeds, you wait for the sun and the rain to do their thing, and at the end you harvest it. And somehow oh, it has a simple annual cycle. And somehow, despite that being really simple and having been proven for thousands of years, they were so inept at it that they literally starved off millions or tens of millions of people died of malnutrition because they completely failed at the central planning. Credit is the most complicated thing. Even its proponents admit that it has a cycle of many years, if not decades, with complicated leads and lags and interrelationships with every other price in the economy. And we're smart enough. We think, oh yeah, we're smarter than the Soviets. We don't we don't do central planning. We know that oh, they were fools to try to centrally plan green. And instead, we think we can centrally plan credit. And the result is the gyrations. One of the great ironies, um, if you look back to the uh, the propaganda or the rationalization, why did we create a Fed in 1913? You know, this idea of unemployment and inflation not, that's anachronistic. That was not the issue of the day. There was not such a thing as structural unemployment in those days, and nobody was really talking about inflation because it didn't really exist. It was to stabilize what they imagined to be the business cycle. And even then, of course, government intruded and, and caused the cycle. And so if, if you look at the interest rate, it's probably the best uh, indicator and symptom of the, of the cycle. Prior to 1913, it's practically table flat. And then they institute this organization to try to stabilize it. And the moment you create this organization to stabilize it, it completely goes off the rails. First it's rising, then it's falling, and we have a major depression that the world had never seen before. Then after World War II, it's skyrocketing. Then after Volcker and Reagan in 1981, it's collapsing into the black hole of zero and beyond. 
And this was after we created this thing to stabilize it. God help us if we hadn't tried to do that. It would be even worse. Keith, the metaphor I've been using lately, it was uh, not too long ago, I was uh, on an afternoon boat ride with some friends. And it was my friend's boat, and he had to go do something on the boat, and he asked me to grab the wheel. So I leaned over and grabbed the wheel. We're going down this, not too narrow, but this this channel or bayou. And, uh, and of course, I had a beer in one hand, and I'm doing the wheel. Uh-oh. So the boat starts to drift toward one bank. Well, I we're going slowly, but, uh, you know, I turned the wheel, and rookie mistake, I overcorrected. So now we're headed toward the other bank at a steeper angle. So what do I do now? I overcorrect the other way. So we're going to the other side. And it just hit me in the middle of this and everybody, wait, we're going to ground and all this stuff, that this is exactly what the Federal Reserve does. This is, they, they overreact to every crisis and each crisis, of course, being the result of their previous overreaction. Yes. So every move has to be more dramatic than the last but it creates and, and is the seed of the, the, the next crisis. And, and that's exactly what we're in. And it's not just that they, they have the hubris to believe that, that people can manage credit that's this very, as you well put it, very complex mechanism and uh, an issue. But the people who say, who think that they can manage it haven't even been bankers, much less ever run a popsicle stand. You know, they have never <laughs> done anything. They have no real world experience. And they are literally the worst people that you could imagine. And and the best people that you could imagine with somebody that would go in, would go in that room, just fold their arms and say, nah, just let it ride. Don't do anything. That's what John Galt said in Atlas Shrugged, right? No, I, I refuse the job. Well, we're giving you the job anyway. Okay, my first order is to shut everything down and go oh, yeah. back to your market. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen the video of the collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge? Mm-hmm. They called it Galloping Gertie, and this bridge had yeah. this, it was a torsional wave, and it would twist one side to the other. It's and, harmonics. It's harmonics, and it's the way yeah. it works. It was it was a resonance, and the there's a wind that comes down that gorge that hit the bridge, and the bridge had the wrong aerodynamics, and it got caught by the wind. But the, the wind, as I understand it, it's not a steady state wind. The wind has a periodicity to it. It, it, you know, it occurs at a certain frequency, boom, boom, hitting the bridge. And that happened to be the resonant frequency of the bridge. So with each cycle, the bridge twists, and then it twists a little more, it twists a little more, it twists even more, and eventually the steel tore and the whole thing dumps into the water. And yeah. that's that's the Fed was the overcorrection. And I was going to say, I don't know how much beer you had, Brian, and we won't get into that, but um, usually like drunk drivers, when they're overcorrecting, it's because there's this lag that the car is starting to to veer. And unlike a normal sober driver, which would just make little tiny corrections almost instantly, they wait too long and then, of course, overcorrect. But it's the waiting too long part that if, if that wait too long is of the right length, then you end up with this resonance and positive feedback loop that eventually ends up in, in one ditch or the other. Yeah, and building on that, it's interesting that these crises are coming, you know, more frequently. And that that 
harmonics, those harmonics, that resonance, those cycles, uh, you know, reflect the world in general and, and life in general. So you can say, well, you can't blame COVID on financial mismanagement. Well, you can blame what came after COVID on financial mismanagement. But <laughs> this seems to run in these cycles and we're getting more and more crises one after the other. We had the tech wreck, then we had great financial crisis and it was a little while longer till COVID. But, you know, we had a decade of zero growth because of the dampening effect of what the Fed was doing. Um, but it just seems like the water these days is circling around the drain and moving much more quickly. And so we are approaching the end game of this decades long cycle. Again, I don't know whether that means two years or 20 years. Uh, and I don't think anybody does. But what I tell people over and over again is nobody can really predict what's ahead, but you can be pretty confident that you're going to want to own gold and silver and associated <laughs> investments going into it. Um, and, and that's just a smart thing to do. Yeah, it, it's reaching an inevitable uh, you know, terminus. I've had uh, arguments with some very prominent supply siders, you, you know, and they acknowledge, okay, there's a debt problem, right? But they say, you know, and then I, one of my arguments is there's no extinguisher of debt. The debt has to keep growing exponentially. And they would say, well, okay, sure. But the nominal debt is now, they would say 33 trillion. I think the last time I had one of these arguments, it was more like under 20. So, you know, here we are greater than 50% growth already. Yeah, sure, the nominal debt is 20 trillion, 30 trillion, whatever. But if we just had some slightly more pro-growth, you know, lower taxes and less regulation, then we could grow our way out of it and the debt service as a percentage of, of GDP would shrink. So there's an economics term, I, I didn't coin this term, uh, called marginal productivity of debt. That um, That's a measure of how much GDP juice you get for every fresh new dollar of debt squeeze. And if that's rising, then then that would confirm the theory of the supply side Wall Street Journal, you know, sort of view. And um, if that's contracting or, or diminishing, then that would confirm that we're headed towards some ultimate crisis from which the system is not going to recover in its current form. And um, so I plot every once in a while uh, a graph of marginal productivity debt. I should probably update it. Uh, just note to self. Um, you have to gather a couple of different data series from the Fed and and do you know sort of a simple spreadsheet to graph it. Um, the marginal productivity of debt is in a line downwards from 1950. This is a very long term structural problem. I know I only say 1950 because that's the oldest data I've been able to find. I suspect that it actually begins either in 1933 when FDR destroyed the gold standard, or 1913 when Wilson created the Fed. I just don't have the data to show that. And so this is this is a downward, you know, there's jitter in it. It went it went below zero in 2008. It recovered, you know, but it's it's a it's a it's a noticeable, un, unarguable downward trend. What happens when marginal productivity of debt gets below zero? That means we have to borrow more in order to contract the economy. And if, if and put another way, each additional dollar of debt only buys, you know, whatever it is is below a dollar or below zero to what you're measuring it, but. Let's say, you know, for each additional dollar of, of debt created, government largesse doled out, you only get, say, 70 cents today in falling of actual real economic uh, activity. So, again, what do you have to do in the next crisis to get X amount of 
of economic activity to rescue the economy. You have to come up with, say, 3x of new liquidity when before you maybe had to do 1.5x. And that's why you have to keep doing more and more because of that marginal utility of, of debt is falling and keeps falling. That's right. And it's, it's, it's going negative at some point. And when it does, that's the, um, I call it the heat death of the economic universe. When you know, you're borrowing in order to shrink. And if you stop borrowing, you're going to collapse. If you keep borrowing, you're shrinking. And then you can't service the debt anymore unless you have lower and lower interest rates. What happens when interest rates go negative? Well, it's an obvious destruction of capital, right? In any normal economy, if I'm running an enterprise that destroys its capital at a rate of minus 1% a year, I should be out of business and the sooner the better so that my people and my what less than my capital can be redeployed into something that's productive. But if the interest rate is minus 2%, I'm being given capital at minus 2%, I'm only destroying it at a rate of minus 1%, I can mark a profit of plus 1%. I should scale up and do more of this. Yeah. So with interest rates, it becomes very obvious that um, all enterprises have to become wealth-destroying enterprises and um there's only a finite amount of capital to go around when it's all destroyed uh you know woe unto us we have to live with the aftermath of that yeah you know we, we've talked for years about how there are huge swaths of the u.s economy and i guess globally as well but particularly in the u.s that where there were zombie companies that could barely pay the the service costs on their debt in yep. a zero interest rate environment you know, so they had very low interest rates, yet they were barely able to make their payments. And that was a huge amount of the U.S. economy. What we're seeing now is that there is a tsunami offshore that's building and about to crash of debt resets at higher rates. And it's going to be like the proverbial machete to the head of these zombie companies. Uh, and that is going to be, you know, I don't know what's going to cause the Fed to, to start lowering rates and to pivot. I don't know what the precipitating factor is, but I think that is one of the most likely because you can just see it building and coming and over the, not years ahead, but months just ahead, it's coming. And uh, Jim Grant calculated the additional interest costs that are gonna hit the economy. And I don't remember the exact number of trillions, but it, I do remember it was equal to the combined economies of Japan and Germany, just in additional interest uh, rate burden yeah. that are about to hit the U.S. economy. And it's it's just amazing. And it's, you know, it's irrefutable. It's coming. So uh, I'm going to steal Ben's line. Uh, what I thought Ben was going to say is we had a zombie month on the Gold Exchange podcast a year ago, October, uh, you know, the lead up to Halloween. And the theme was the zombie companies, and we had a bunch of different guests that were experts in various aspects of this. I think it was was the number been twenty percent of all corporate debt outstanding back back before rates were going up was zombie debt, and they couldn't they, they you know profits were less than interest expense at zero. Yeah. Then you hike then you hike the the T bill rate to five or five and a half percent. And you know what is what is a zombie company going to have to pay when it's when it, you know when it's loan resets, and how many companies that weren't zombies at zero interest rates are now zombies at seven or eight percent? There's a whole nother cohort. It's probably half or more of all corporate debt is zombie debt. 
And um, you know, at these rates, what 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 is the Fed going to do? Well, obviously, it, it's only a question of how much crisis they allow to unfold before they slam the rates back to zero and beyond. Yeah, and in that debt, you know, when they default, that money goes to money heaven. So you have a tr tremendous deflationary <laughs> wave. And, you know, as we know, central bankers are, are raised at their mother's breast to abhor deflation. And that, that's one thing they all agree on is you cannot have deflation. So, again, if you thought that the great financial crisis prescription was dramatic, if you thought that the post-COVID prescription was dramatic, wait till you see the, 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 the floodgates opening up when this right. hits the uh, Remember when the New England Patriots got caught deflating the football? Yeah. So there was a meme that showed um, Paul Krugman screwing his face up, and who's like, you know, what? Deflation, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Brian, I, I want to ask you, in terms of the zombies, another thing that we discussed actually on our last podcast with Bob Elliott we were saying, hey, listen, the Fed is not going to get trapped in the same scenario twice. If they know that, hey, last time the toilet exploded, so I really got to make sure, okay, make sure no water leaks out of the toilet. Then they're forgetting that the shower also has a spigot. So it might come out of the shower or it might come out of the faucet or it might come out of the tiles, right? So the the one area that they're looking at, okay, yeah, maybe they can have some extra you know, padding there. They can really keep their eyes on it. They'll make sure that nothing happens. There'll be no deflation, God forbid. But they're not looking at the faucet, the shower, the sink, uh, the incinerator, right? Like all the all these other places where water can leak or all these kind of uh, accidents can spring up. Another example would be commercial real estate, right? When they have to go and say, hey, you know, uh, this $20 billion building doesn't really make sense at 8% mortgage rates. People are going to say, well, here are the keys, right? I'll, I'll just send them right back. So uh, question for you, Brian, other than let's say these zombie companies, where are some places that investors should be looking and saying, hey, you know, am I in one of these danger zones that the Fed is just not paying attention to? Well, all, all over the place. You talk about commercial real estate. There's one. You can look at multifamily housing, uh, which the uh, the permits soared just re the last month. Uh, but there aren't any uh there's there's no financing stacks being put together for new construction so they got these permits but there's nobody investing and new starts are about to from what uh, uh industry insiders are saying are about to fall off a cliff it goes back to what the fed wants to happen and make no mistake the fed actually wants a recession because they believe, and I think rightly so, that that's the only thing that can kill off this, this job market in the U.S., which is, you know, amazingly uh, tight and, and resilient. Um, and, you know, it, as a side note, the U.S. economy is incredibly dynamic and you have to really screw things up to send it into a, a recession or, or depression. Bad news, they're really screwing things up and, and, they really do want a recession. But again, it's like, be careful what you ask for, because you have all of the issues that that come from going from the easiest monetary policy in human history, followed by one of the harshest tightening cycles ever seen. You have all of the issues arising from that. The, the debt resets, the, the housing, the commercial real estate, everything else 
and the just general malaise that you know an upcoming recession is is going to create. So a recession is, I would think, the most likely uh, thing that will force the the Fed's hand. But but that's a very general term. Where will that recession originate? What will drive it? Which then leads to how deep and how sharp it will be, which then uh, you know, implies what the Fed's reaction will be and how sharp it will be. But these things tend to build on themselves. And, and I'm not a big believer that we can have, you know, just a little bit of a slowdown without the whole economy starting to trip up on itself in light of what the Fed's doing. But, you know, you also have uh, as possible candidates the banking crisis, um, that could reignite at any time because the business practices of First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank were not that far removed from the, the normal operating practices of just about every regional bank out there. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank was, was a classic bank run fueled by text messages and Twitter. You know, it just came a lot more quickly than, than we saw historically because of that that can reignite in, in a flash. Uh, we have the whole derivatives issue, you know, that's always out there. There's the interconnectivity of these uh, derivative positions and the dominoes where one can fall and cause, you know, trillions and trillions of liabilities to, to all of a sudden come to the fore. The bottom line, I, well, if, if you're looking at what might be the, the thing that creates the next big crisis, I think it's most likely to be something nobody's really considering. It's going to be a bit of a surprise. Um, that's what we've seen, you know, many times, uh, you know, there'll be one person who figured it out and bet on it, like we saw, you know, in 2007, 2008. But generally speaking, I don't know that it's going to be something that's already made the headlines. I think it's it may come out of left field. Yeah, Brian, I do tend to agree with you that it's always the unknown unknown, right? We do know some of the known unknowns. Hey, mm -hmm. we don't know how bad it is in commercial real estate. Hey, we don't know what's going to happen with these zombie companies. But at least we know that we don't know. The real issue are the unknown unknowns. We're like, we didn't even think to look over there. And of course, Keith, I want to get your opinion on this. All the economies, centrally planned or otherwise, are interconnected, not only by the interest rate, which affects pretty much all businesses, but the liabilities of one businesses are sometimes the asset or maybe always the asset of another business. And this can lead to a domino effect where, hey, if Keith didn't pay his bill on time, well, I can't pay my plumber. And if my plumber can't pay his employees, well, then they can't go out to Shake Shack. And then I mean, Shake Shack and so forth and so forth and so forth. So Keith, tell me a little bit, how do the liabilities and assets dominoes play out with higher rates? So the problem with Silicon Valley Bank was the value of their asset, which was the treasury's liability, went down, right? So rising interest rates is the strict mathematical interest of seesaw. If rates are going up, then, then bond prices at least are going down. There was no credit risk because they own treasuries. They didn't own you know, corporate bonds, mortgages, leverage loans, right? It was just treasuries as far as, I, as, far as I've read. Yeah. But the treasury value, treasury uh, bond fell in market price and uh, that was enough to, you know, cause them uh, uh, distress, to say the least, and then they failed. Um, in most other places, you not only have the market price risk, but you also have the actual credit risk itself. So if, if I have a balance sheet that's loaded up with, 
commercial real estate bonds, the market price of any bond is down because it's a higher interest rate environment. But on top of that, there's also a risk that the um, you know commercial real estate developers that owe me this money that they have you know high vacancy rates, right? So Monetary Metals, our office is here in the Scottsdale Galleria, which is a large commercial. Pro- it was originally built as a shopping mall, ironically, during I think the 1990s, failed as a shopping mall, and then it was redeveloped as a commercial office um, complex, and um, you know, the parking lot's virtually empty. When you come into, there's a giant atrium and then all the offices on three levels all around it. Most of them look dark to me. There's not a lot of people walking around in the atrium. There's a huge amount of uh, furniture there. There's all these different settings for people to, to basically have coffee and uh, you know have meetings and whatever. Most of that furniture is empty most of the time. Um, how is this developer doing on, on making their uh, uh, monthly debt service payment? I don't know. But there's a problem. So if, if my balance sheet is loaded up with this stuff, so I owe, let's say, a billion dollars to my lenders, and then I have a billion dollars worth of property developer debt as my asset and their liability, and then they default. Now suddenly my balance sheet collapses, the asset side collapses. Therefore, I can't service my liabilities, which is somebody else's asset. And so you get dominoes. And so it'll go all the way around the monetary system, the entire thing. You want to talk about deflation, their worst nightmare, actually, it's our worst nightmare as well. I don't think anybody should want to see this happen, is that everything that everybody considers to be money is all wiped out in a giant, you know, zero event. And we all go back to, um, uh, you know, whatever whatever base money is that isn't affected by this. I'm not sure how much that would be. Um, that would be an epic wipeout. That would be a collapse. And, and, and a major disaster. And people think, you know, deflation is good because I'm going to have the same amount of money, but all these other consumers that are trying to compete against me at the grocery store, they're going to be out of my way. It's like, why do people vote for light rail? And we had um, uh, uh, Brian Kaplan on our, our podcast, and he disagrees with me on this point, but I still hold it. I think most people vote for light rail. Yeah, okay, it's green, good for the environment, blah, 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 you know more, uh, you know, social, everybody should be riding the train together. But I think most people vote for light rail because they're stuck in traffic on the on the uh, freeway and they think all these other cars will be out of my way. All these other people will be riding the light rail and therefore I'll have the road free to myself. Yeah, okay, that's worth some, some, some tax dollars for that. And of course, all the other drivers looking at them with the same assumption. It's the same thing with, oh yeah, let's have some unemployment to reduce prices at the grocery store. So all these other consumers will no longer be out competing me at the grocery store. Well, what if it's you, you losing your job? And besides, we have such a vast welfare state at this point. I'm not really sure that cons- consumption goes down all that much when people lose their jobs. They just go on to welfare and unemployment and whatever. Certainly, they're still buying the same food that they were. Um, so, uh, you know, how, how does this cascade? I think... The Fed, the difference between the Fed today, as I read it, and the Fed of 2007 to 2008, is the Fed at that time, I mean, forget the propaganda when they say everything's fine, it's all contained, blah, 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 blah. I mean, they feel that um, animal spirits animate the economy and that they have to be optimistic, lest it become a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is rubbish. Um, But I think the difference is the Fed today is hyper, I'll use the term hyper proactive. The slightest leak in the dam and the and the uh the squid sprouts another tentacle to, 
you know, plug the leak. And another one, and another one. They're doing all kinds of things, even now. So this problem that happened to Silicon Valley Bank, as Brian said, happened to every other bank as well. It was not unique to Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and so what does the Fed do? They said, we're going to have this term loan bank lending facility. I think they, I forget what they called it. Basically, it's repo for treasury bonds. But for banks that qualify, um, they're going to repo those bonds at face value, whatever the bank paid back at the peak prices in, let's say, summer of 2020, not today's prices, which are 25% down from, from those prices. So they're going to repo it at, at full par value, which effectively means, now they said it's full recourse against the bank, but if the bank needs a bailout now, the Fed's in no position to demand any recourse. They said it's only one year, but if, if things don't change in a year, they'll, they'll extend it. This effectively creates, that bifurcates the interest rate. Right, so there's one interest rate for 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 us. If you want to borrow money today as a, as a business, you know T bills are at five and a half percent, and you're getting a spread to that. A SOFR is at five percent and six percent, and you're getting a spread to that. But if you're a bank and you're stuck with all these assets on your balance sheet, then the interest rate is effectively right back to zero point six five percent, which is what it was in the summer of 2020. So that's an example where they've sprouted a tentacle to plug that leak. Um, another one that's really been concerning me, and I think I've written about this and I've muttered about it on a few podcasts over the last you know, year and a half or so, why has the spread between junk bonds and treasuries, right? So anybody can go look at B of AML option adjusted uh, spread um, is the way to look at it. A lot of people look at, um, what is it? Uh, TLT minus JNK, right? You can, you can do that in your brokerage account. The spread between junk and treasuries why is that not blown out? I mean, everything has gone up together, but that spread isn't really particularly wider. Uh, and it should have completely blown out. And it hasn't. And that's really been concerning me. So I had a very fascinating conversation with uh, a friend of mine who's in the insurance business. And he was talking to somebody on the uh, asset management side of a big insurance company. And they said that um, so insurance companies depending on what asset they buy, they have to reserve a certain amount of capital against it. You can use the greatest leverage for things like, you know, T-bills and much, much less leverage if you're buying junk bonds. They get some sort of special credits for purposes of their balance sheet capital if they're buying junk bonds today that they that isn't normal. So the regulators are saying, stuff yourself to the gills with junk bonds and we will look the other way perhaps the way the authorities did when Silicon Valley Bank was loading itself up with, um, you know, 10-year treasury bonds backed by uh, demand deposits. You know, we'll just look the other way and allow an accounting fiction to, to let you get away with this. So the Fed is very proactive in trying to find buyers for all this stuff and trying to tamp down the volatility that would otherwise already have exploded as they did post-COVID, as they did post, you know, 2009, each of these things, let's change the rules, let's make things less honest, less transparent, and then tamp down the, the selling wave that would that would about to explode in our faces. Then to, to your point about, um, okay, that's the toilet, but what about the shower? What about the sink? What about um, you know all, all the other things, the dog bath and the basement? Um, it's gonna come exploding out of, out, of a, out of a source that they didn't anticipate. And then if they're a little bit drunk and they, you know, the lag is too late and then they react to that a slightly delayed and then, you know, overcorrect. Um, 
you know, all we can say right now is the pressures are building and they're already enormous. That you know, is- the, uh, the, the, the insane thing about what you just described is that so many people, including at the Fed, will make that argument or use that as the argument for why we need the Fed. Amp <laughs> down these things and and uh, rectify the failures of the free market because obviously when you have a free market things spin out of control. So the answer then is going to be we need to give the Fed broader powers and stay out of their business, let them do what they want, and and that it that's going to be what comes out of Washington. Um, you know, after the next crisis, is they need more power, they need more ability and more programs and more levers to pull. Right. The issue was not, hey, this whole system itself is incentivized to create problems. Look at what you did here and there. And you needed to admit it. Oh, this was us. But the issue is never, let's get rid of this. Let's privatize this. Let's do something here. The issue is always, we just needed more people. We needed more PhDs. We needed more broad authorities to look for commercial real estate this time. Oh, if we only had 10 more PhDs, we would have seen commercial real estate. It's just... There's a sarcastic joke lingering in my head right now is what's the word for when the Fed policy screws it all up and causes a great big failure? Free market failure. Right. <laughs> and we need better models. So we need more PhD economists and the staff expands and they're making $250,000 each. And yeah, it really does make me want to run for Congress just so I can ask them, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> well, Unfortunately, it seems like if we ever have really high unemployment, the Fed can just have everyone do a PhD paid for by the government, then the government will say you don't have to pay for the PhD, and then the Fed will hire everyone with the money that they've borrowed. So I think this is an actually viable economic plan. But Brian, I want to ask you, the New Orleans Investment Conference is coming up. We've got an incredible lineup of speakers, Keith included. So who is coming this year? What can we expect? And with the environment, what do you think are the main topics? Well, the main topics, I, I believe, are just where we talked about that, you know, the end of this tightening cycle is coming. So what's the next big thing and where is it going to come from? And I've got is, you know, I think you all will agree, just an incredible lineup. Um, not based, I'm just looking at a list of our speakers at the head of it is Matt Taibbi, who is not so much macroeconomics but represents another big issue, the assault of government on free speech and censoring. Uh, we just saw, a, you know, obviously COVID brought out a lot of uh, new tyrannical efforts by the government to throttle free speech. And Matt has been at the forefront of exposing that. He's going to have a special presentation uh, for our audience on that topic. But on macroeconomics, we have James Rickards, Danielle DiMartino Booth, George Gammon, uh, Rick Rule, Dominic Frisbee, Brent Johnson, Lynn Alden in person, rare to see her in person at an event she's coming in. Uh, Dave Collum, who's always a hoot, Peter Bookvar, kind of the resident contrarian on CNBC, just absolutely brilliant. Uh, Jim Stack, um, longtime friend of mine, going back decades, has predicted every bubble and bust uh, really over the last 35 years. Uh, Peter Schiff, Jim Iorio, Tabby Costa, uh, and, you know, Adrian Day, Mark Skousen, Keith is going to be there. And really just going down the list, dozens and dozens of the top experts 
not just in macroeconomics, but, you know, in metals and mining, uh, which is one of the areas, obviously, that we covered over the decades very closely, and in really every asset class. We also have Konstantin Kizen coming, who more on the geopolitical end, but he, I think, is the most eloquent uh, uh, commentator uh, out there today on freedom of, not just freedom of speech, but anti-wokeness um, and really personal liberty, and very happy to, to have him in a couple of special presentations. It's it's really, you know, we it's been called the world's greatest investment event, and I think this year's lineup, this year's roster lives up to that like like never before. Yeah, and Brian, what I find so interesting about the event is not only if you're an investor, you can say, hey, I want to learn about commercial real estate. There's going to be an expert there. Hey, I want to learn about whatever, yield on gold. Well, all right, Keith's going to be there. All right, hey, I want to learn more about uh, the mining sector. Okay, you're going to have mining companies there, right? This is not just, uh, hey, you know, every mining company showing up. And if you're not interested in miners, well, you know, the event's not for you. It feels like there's actually a speaker, a, a talk, and an event that's really catered to just everything that you need to know. And that goes back to the unknowns, unknowns. Well, now you might know about a couple of them. Yeah, you know, it, the, the agenda goes from 7 in the morning till, you know, about 9 o'clock at night. Uh, just absolutely jam-packed workshops and speakers, lots of opportunities, social opportunities to mingle with the other attendees, and every single thing is recorded. So you, you don't have to feel, it sounds overwhelming, uh, but you really can go in there and dip a ladle in this information stream and this one and that one, get back, review everything you didn't weren't able to attend personally uh, and, and put it all together. But there is... No, there's no other gathering out there of independent, really uh, smart thinkers, uh, thought leaders out there like the, this year's New Orleans Investment Conference. And our room block is going to be closing well before the event. So and the price is going to be going up. So I really urge people to register as soon as they can and make sure they get a spot in our host hotel and save as much money as they can, because uh you won't see another event like this anytime soon. Absolutely. So Brian, final question here. What's a question I should be asking all future guests of the Gold Exchange podcast? Oh, well, that's a great question. I would uh, ask them, you know, do you, do you tend to do gold price predictions? Because that always puts people on the spot, makes them squirm a bit. <laughs> Brian, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Gold Exchange podcast. Where can people find more of your work? Where can people read the Gold Newsletter? And of course, where can people sign up to come to the New Orleans Investment Conference? Well, they can go to neworleansconference.com. Very simply, neworleansconference.com. If you get all the details on the event and they can uh, sign up for Gold Newsletter or our free uh, e-letter, Market Commentaries, and uh, they can go to goldnewsletter.com for that. Brian, I want to thank you so much for coming on as the unknown unknowns rear their ugly heads. We'll be sure to uh, have you back on. And of course, we'll see you all in New Orleans. So we hope to see you there. Great. Thank you so much. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the gold yield marketplace a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and our gold financing simplified, reliable financing 
denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.